every great film and TV maker began as a red carpet rookie. In this podcast, each episode provides a new conversation with a leading film and TV industry professional, deconstructing their creative career and delving into the life lessons and stories they've picked up along the journey. My name is Mike Battle, a film crew member turned screenwriter, and I'll be your host, and this is Red Carpet Rookies. I was 24 years old when we went over to make Schindler's List. I didn't know what I was doing. I have that still. Everything I do, imposter syndrome. What I learned from Steven Spielberg is um, just keep going. Push forward, you know, no matter how bad things get. And then they casted a young guy named Brad Pitt. Don't think so much. Don't take no for an answer. It was my first meeting with David about Fight Club. The day that Pixar called, I was ready. I just picked up the phone and made half a million dollars. I mean, at the beginning of every job, I kind of think, what if I don't have any ideas? Dream come true, working on a Bond film. I was terrified because I thought, well, what if I just screw this right up? He said, you'll get a script at the end of the week. It was Titanic. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. I'm lucky to introduce today's guest, who has been at the forefront of British comedy for the last two decades. The man behind hit shows such as Back, starring Mitchell and Webb, and Sky's Breeders, his career is long and celebrated, but it is his partnership with Armando Iannucci for which he is probably best known. Together, they have brought movies like In the Loop and the personal history of David Copperfield into the world, as well as the now legendary sitcom The Thick of It and its ridiculously acclaimed US cousin Veep, which won 17 Emmy Awards during its run. Along the way, he picked up two of them for himself, as well as four BAFTA nominations and an Oscar nomination for In The Loop. My guest is Mr. Simon Blackwell. How are you doing today? Um, very well, thank you, Mike. It's, when, you, when you talk about it being decades, <laughs> it, I, I still think I'm, I still feel quite new to it, you know, and it's uh, the fact that it's, I have been doing it for 25 years or a bit longer um, always surprises me. Still on the journey, Simon? Yeah, yeah. So it's still trying to get better. That's the... <laughs> oh, good. We'll get to that. Funnily enough, I had a question about that. So we'll get to that one later. Now, I ask all of my guests the same first question, Simon, and that is, what did your parents do and did it affect your career choices moving forward? Um, my dad was a wages clerk. He worked for Watney's in London in the uh, when I was growing up. And my mum, we lived on a Peabody estate in Battersea. And my mum work behind the counter in one of the corner shops on the estate. There was in those days there were like seven, eight corner shops on the one estate. And she was working behind the counter in one of those. So yeah, there's no kind of showbiz, no writing. Um uh yeah, they were they they sort of did jobs rather than have careers. Were your parents funny? Yes. Yeah. That was they were both really funny. And um my dad had a very dry sense of humor. My mum had a very rude sense of humour, um, <laughs> as did her mum, my granny, Granny Grunt, she used to call herself. I'm um, Granny Grunt with the cast iron constitution. She oh. would <laughs> say. And only later did I speak the rhyme. Um, but yeah, so they were it was a it was a and we always watched comedy in the house. That was whatever was on, if good, bad, or indifferent, if it was a comedy, we would watch it. Um, because we liked to laugh. And um so yeah, they were they were they were funny people. It, it was um, yeah, and they were sharp and smart. And you know, in another era, would have would have gone to university and and you know, and done different things. That's lovely to hear. Is that the granny that used to take you out looking at signs or something like that? Yes, she used to take me and my sister out. Uh, she used to say, "I've got the pens. Let's go out." And she used to take us around the streets of Battersea to write rude words on street signs. 
So she'd go, go write bum on there. And so we'd go and write bum on a sign. And just, <laughs> it was an afternoon. It was, it was an afternoon well spent. I don't know if any of them still survive kind of, you know, 40 odd years later. Um, yeah, but yeah, that was the, that was uh, an afternoon's entertainment <laughs> with my granny. She sounds great. She was brilliant. And, um, and yeah, and she was, you know, she was very smart and she was very uh, funny and she'd been born in a workhouse and she was, um, you know, again, in another era, she would have been something else, but she was, you know, she was the, a child of, of her times. Interesting. Did you have a moment yourself when you kind of realized, quote unquote, you were funny? I know it's a bit of a weird thing to ask that question, but I've noticed it with often comedians and less so writers, but comedy writers, but they often say like, oh, there was a moment. I'm like, actually, I'm kind of making people laugh here. Maybe there's something in this. I did. I can remember I used to, uh, um, at primary school, I used to do impressions, I think, kind of Mike Yarwood style impressions. And I, um, I used to make the teachers laugh sometimes with that. And then I think if, if you're a kid and you make an adult laugh in a, in a, in a proper way rather than them laughing at you, that you're, you're they're laughing with you because you've said something funny. I think uh, there were probably a couple of locations where I've kind of made my mum and dad laugh. I thought, oh, okay, I can do it. I've got a, uh, you know, I've got an inkling as to what the secret is that allows this, this sort of magic thing to happen. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting, definitely. Have you ever done stand-up through your career? No, no. It terrifies me. Just the thought of it makes me feel ill. Um, I just don't, I never want to be on stage. I'm always, I'm happy to be a writer. And I'm always asked when we're doing shows, do I want to be in the background of this shot? And, um, and, the, and even kind of, you know, awards things, sometimes I, I secretly hope you don't win. So <laughs> you don't have to get up on the stage. So it's, I'm no stand up. I've got a great admiration for stand up. So I used to work with a lot of them when I was in radio and doing more kind of gag based stuff, um, early on. And the fact that they could know they got a gig in the evening and they weren't in a cold sweat about it used to, I, I admired that very much. You know, I worked a lot with Chris Addison, who was a touring comic for years. And um, just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Even if it's to an audience who want to see it, it's difficult. But imagine but doing an open sport or just a club where people aren't necessarily to know who you are, just you no know, brings me out in the, in the cold sweat. Yeah. It's funny. I have the same thing. And I'm very Bambi-like, as I was saying to you before we went on with my comedy writing, but people read them and they say, oh, this is a funny script, but I definitely don't consider myself to ever be a comedy performer. So I, I wonder what that line is, you know, because you see yeah. comedy writers in interviews and yeah. often in, in a way, you know, they're not necessarily Ricky Gervais in that way. And it's a, an interesting distance, I guess. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, Armando is a, is a, he's a performer as well. And so he's very, you know, he can, he's happy to be on stage. He's happy to be in front of the camera. Tony Roach did stand up for a bit years ago. He did a kind of poetry act, I think, but he never much enjoyed it. But yeah, I, I've, I, I would never call myself a comedian. I'm a, you know, I'm a, com I'm a comedy writer. Sometimes I say screenwriter to make it sound a little more grand, but I'm a, I'm a comedy. I never, I don't write anything that isn't comedy. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a comedian. I couldn't be on a panel show, for instance. I couldn't be a comedian like, you know, David Mitchell can be a, uh, just funny, you know, in that, in that environment. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for opening up on that. Do you remember the first script that you ever did write? So you had that background in, funny household you had nana making you write funny things do you remember the first script you wrote and why you wrote it well i was it would have been uh, rather than a script it would have been gags because i got into writing via 
BBC Radio. There was a show called Weekending on uh, when I started out because I, I was in my thirties when I start when I started Brighty. But there was a um, show called Weekending, and um, you could walk in, literally walk in off the street, and um, and go up to to a room in the light entertainment department. And they there were commissioned writers who wrote most of it, but they would allow non-commissioned writers, i.e. just people who walked in off the street, to um, to have a go. And they'd say, these are the subjects that the commission writers haven't covered. We need gags on these, sketches on these. Go away. And then you'd send them in. If they liked them, they would go on that show. And I think at that time, you know, with the Saturday repeat, I think it was you know, like a million people would listen to Weekending. So you'd get 15 quid for a joke. And you'd also think, well, it's gone out to, you know, to all of mm. Britain. Um, and so I don't re- remember any of the early gags, but I remember my excitement at getting on the radio. And I remember also my, when I got a, again, for a non-commissioned show, there's a TV show, Rory Bremner's show. I remember getting a joke on there and I remember seeing my name go up at the end in the list of credits. And I was so excited. I didn't sleep that <laughs> night. I just lay awake. I was, and I thought, oh, okay. I really do want to do this tonight because it, it felt so good. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Did you have, I don't know, did you have thoughts at that time of writing longer form stuff? Well, I, there was a, at that time, the kind of, the attitude was that there were very distinct, you know, if you were a gag writer and you were over here and you were a narrative writer, a comic, comic narrative writer over here, and you didn't really, you know, the streams didn't cross. And, and if you were going down the gag writing, route that was where you're going to stay but then i started i I guess the you know the transition was i um i did a show called the kumars at number 42 and for the latter couple of series of that there was a it was a it was a kind of interview fake interview show with sanjay pascal and mirasaya and um and it was the, the the conceit was it was you know that sanj had a studio in his house and he would interview these celebrities but in between the, the the interview sections, there were three kind of narrative bits of a story of the week, and I was I got to write those. So I was writing kind of three acts there, even though they were each act was only like you know, four or five minutes long. And I was also doing the same thing for a, a kids show called Bounty Hamster that was on ITV, like, uh, uh, an animation, and that was a uh, needed to be a, a three act structure, but again in eleven minutes. So I was. I was feeling my way over to to writing narrative, but I never had because I was because when I started out, I already had two kids. I didn't have the the you know the thick come in my back pocket that I've been secretly working on. Everything I worked on, I did to get paid. Yeah. So I you know I I didn't have anything that I was writing you know secretly uh, that I wasn't being paid for. So I had nothing to offer people, and um, I mean the, the thing that happened was I just got. Um, I got an email from Armando Inucci. I'd worked on a on a topical show with him uh, in 1993 called Gash that was um, was going out around the same time as the as the uh, Iraq War, and um, and I've been a kind of gag writer on that and you know just sort of items and sketches and things. And then out of the blue, you know, a year later maybe he um, I got this email saying I'm I'm doing this uh, sitcom based in Westminster. Jesse Arms, he and Jesse Armstrong are writing episode one. Um, I want Tony um, uh, Tony Roach to to write one. I wonder whether you two would like to write together as a as a team. And um, and then I didn't want to be too key and and say it. So I went downstairs and I made a cup of tea and I went back up. I must have waited seven minutes 
before I replied <laughs> yes, please, I would love to do that. Um, and he just took a chance on me. That was Armando just seeing, you know, that I'm I might be able to do it. You know, just be a do a longer form narrative thing, and um, and just taking a punt. And he said, you know, do you want to write with Tony? Tony and I had kind of worked on other shows together, but not as a writing partnership. We'd been on various kind of Radio Four things as solo writers, but we knew each other. We were friends. Um, and so it was that really that, um, that, that started it. And, you know, with, you know, so Jesse and me and Tony and Arm and Ian Martin then, you know, started doing the thick of it. Amazing. Did you sleep that night when you got that email? That was, a, that was another <laughs> difficult one. Um, you never get any was, sleep, Simon. It was because it was so out of the blue, you know, and you think these things, these things happen and they just, you know, there's so much luck in this business really of just being in the right place at the right time and, and it, things being in you know, in sync and um so that was just that came absolutely out of nowhere and it was what it was you know it was and i'd wanted to move to narrative i'd wanted to i felt i'd done enough sketches and enough gags um and i wanted to try something longer to see if i could do it and to, to you know have more time to play with to, to, to do comedy amazing what was that daily writing process like when you had yourself armando jesse and tony in those early days and how did that collaboration work especially if you didn't know them particularly well well we'd had we would have a kind of you know initial meetings with all of us in a in a room in marmando's kind of office in tv center and then we'd go off and write very quick first drafts and uh, i mean really quick like in a week or something and um and then we would uh, and then we'd kind of swap them around we would it was like because there was no money for the BBC didn't have the money to do a kind of writer's room, an American type writer's room thing. We did a kind of writer's room, but via email. So we would just, we would work on each other's thing and arm would be at the center like Charlie and Charlie's angels. If, <laughs> if, if Charlie's, if the angels were middle-aged men and um, he would just, uh, he would go, he would kind of then get the strips back and he would give notes and they'd go out again. And it would be this very collaborative process so much so that when people ask now who came up with that joke um usually you don't know sometimes you've got your favorites that you think yeah that is mine but usually you it's it's you can't tell because it was it went through so many iterations and through so many brains that it was and i'm always at the center of it i'm kind of guiding it and 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 you know getting getting it to the place you wanted it to be um but it was fun and because we were continue to write through the rehearsal process and off the back of the you know improvisation of the actors and we would continue to write when we were on set you know throwing extra lines and and if stuff didn't be working coming up with new stuff so it was never you would you were never finished with it it was always you were it was constantly being created and that included up until the edit as well when arm would would go in and you know we'd have probably 60 minutes in the in the first assembly for a 28 minute show and right. um and so he'd go and do the final rewrite in the edit and um and that's when you know he's a genius in many ways. I think that's one of the main prongs of his genius fork is his uh, editing ability, his ability to get something out of the edit that you think, how the hell did you take an hour's show and make it into half an hour and make it make sense and and you seem to have added stuff to it that i rather than taking stuff away but it's so there's a kind of you know there's a sort of some sort of magic stuff going on there he did that when he in the loop came in i think the early in the loop the film was sort of like three and a half hours or longer 
And you'd watch it and you'd think, well, we need everything in that. We need everything in that to make the story make sense. We can't lose anything. And it came in a, an hour and a half and the story made sense. And it's, and it was, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm continue to be sort of amazed at how he does it. Because I would define your guys' work as the sort of thing you would say, there's no fat on it. Yes. Yeah. And, and, um, yeah. And once he gets to that, you know, He'd often just, he, he, he cuts the top and the bottom off a, a scene. He cuts all the kind of the preamble and the postamble and he just goes for the, for the meat. And, you know, but yeah, you wouldn't know it was that we'd, we'd, we'd filmed as much as we had. And of course, as a writer, you need to be prepared to lose all of that material. You need to be prepared to, you know, for the vast majority of what you write to never see the light of day. Mm. And, and we tried in the past, we've, we've kind of put, you know, uh, you know, uh, we tried putting a kind of file together of jokes and bits we like to use later, and we never did really because they never fitted into you know the, whatever the later episode was. So you have to be prepared. You had to be prepared on that show and on Veep as well to just go. Most of this, I've got to write the first half of it as if it's the shooting strip to, to try and make it as good as possible. But very little of this is going to go out on the telly, and you just have to kind of square that. Is that quite hard mentally? In a way, yeah, it is. It is. You just have to kind of put the blinkers on and go. This is, you know, this is. I'm, I'm writing this shooting strip rather than the first draft. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make this as good as possible. And but knowing that there be, you know, not just you know, kill your darlings, but kind of a massive massacre of your darlings will happen. And then you'll come up with new stuff, and it will be will be better. Armando was always likened it to making a chicken stock where you kind of put a lot of stuff in and you boil it down and then you put some more things in and you boil it down and you and in the end you've got this very rich thing and it's that's the thick of it has a lot of story going on in it. Each episode you forget that they are, you know, that this moment happened and this moment happened and this moment happened and you think there was three different episodes and it, it was one because mm. we just stuffed it with story. Before we do talk about some Veep stuff, because you mentioned it there and I would love to talk about it. There's one personal question I would love to ask about the making of the thick of it, because I'm interested in the character web of it. And personally, I was always intrigued by, you know, where you fill gaps in your script with characters. And I, I never quite got loved him. But Jamie, if I'd have written Malcolm, where was the thinking? Because he is similar in a way. And I always wondered what you guys, your thoughts behind him were. Well, my my thought on it was that it was a bit like Frasier and Niles in Frasier, in that you you know when they came up with with Frasier and they had to give him a brother, you know the 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 first thing you think about was let's make the brother completely different to Frasier. But what they did was they made him a kind of a haiku kind of espresso version of Frasier, and that's what Jamie is, I think, to Malcolm. He is you know he is the haiku version. Of, of Malcolm he is he doesn't have Malcolm you know has limits he he will you know there, there are things he won't do and Jamie is feral Jamie will Jamie will do anything Jamie is uncontrollable um so that's I always thought of it a bit like that a bit like um Fraser and Niles is in that Niles is kind of uber Fraser and Jamie is uber Malcolm but he's you know he can't survive the way Malcolm can because he's a he is mm -hmm. such a ball of fury Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for giving me that answer. I've always been intrigued by that. And speaking of first drafts, you mentioned a little bit back there when you guys were writing on the thick of it. I heard you in another interview talking about writing a draft for Veep when you got on a plane on one end and had to write it on the way over to America. And specifically, I'd love to ask, 
How did you approach that in the sense of you sitting there? I presume the story has been broken in front of you already. What do you write first? Did you have a, a methodology to it? I think it was, I think I just had to go from beginning to end. Um, I knew, I mean, it was also, there was the, um, it was a, it was an old fashioned British Airways flight that used to go into Baltimore. So it had, didn't have any kind of, you couldn't plug a MacBook in. It didn't have, you know, so, so I was fighting the battery as well that I had to kind of get this thing written and save it before the battery went. Um, so I don't know how much of it we had. We didn't have a lot of it together because it was a crazy season. Well, I mean, there were a few crazy seasons on that show, <laughs> but um, you know, it was it was the last. It was the last one. It was the one. Um, it was the one that got the Emmy, the writing, and um, it was we and everything. Everything was being written quickly, and someone else was working on you know, episode nine, and someone else was working on episode eight. So. I think I just started at the beginning and went through and just tried to whiz through as much as possible. I I can't remember how much of a structure there was. There must have been a structure there, and but it was you know I, I remember that the the plane ride was the it was kind of galvanizing. It sort of made you think I've got to get something at the end of this, like a school deadline. Yeah, it was just <laughs> a kind of you you know it, I had we had to because we we you know, there were going to be cameras and actors and people there, so we had to and then you know. It would then it got rehearsed and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, but the initial kind of burst of it, we yeah, was on a flight from from Heathrow to Baltimore, and um, and sometimes now I when I was doing you know if I'm having trouble with a script on on Breeders, I Toby Welch, my producer on that, sometimes says, um, you know, do, should we book you a plane? We can, <laughs> we can get get the next draft out of you if we get if we take you to Baltimore and back. Speaking of um, Breeders, how did becoming a parent? change your writing through your career did it affect it much well i became a parent before i became a writer and in and it was and i think i became a writer because i became a parent because i'd always wanted to be a comedy writer and i'd always been terrified that i wouldn't be any good so i never tried it because i always thought if you don't you know if you try it and you find out you're lousy then that's the dream god whereas if you don't try it you can always have the dream that maybe i could one day do this but that's all, you know, that's putting it off, putting it off and putting it off. And what I think galvanized me for starting, starting writing was that I had two kids and they turn your life upside down. Um, absolutely upside down. So I thought, well, why don't I try and change work upside down and see if I can make a go of writing? Yeah. See if I can, you know, if, if I've got it in me. So actually, you know, becoming a parent made me into a writer. And I wasn't a writer. You know, when I was single and no kids and I had all the time in the world to write, I didn't write a word. Um, but when I was, you know, when it was, I just had a couple of hours a night, for instance, when I started on weekending, I would have a couple of hours in the evening between, you know, doing all the baby stuff. I would have a couple of hours to get as many sketches and, and gags written as possible. And it focused the mind and it, and it's, you know, it was that that made me, made me a writer and then there's a cliche that the, the you know the pram in the hall is the enemy of the writer and i think it's not it's the friend of the writer because you just you the little time you have you want to make count mm. so that's that's what i was doing when i started how interesting i know you guys had a lot of big lunches in the beginning to share your parenting stories between yourself yeah as and, and martin freeman how did you decide what went in was there anything that was almost too close to home i don't think so i think we um 
I think we just decided if if we thought we could make it funny, we would go in, even if it was. And um, you know, the, in the in the in the initial in the pilot episode where you think, you know, Ali thinks Paul might have killed their children. Genuinely, um, we were sort of setting out our stall then as to where we were prepared to go with it. And then I don't think it was ever quite that harsh for the rest of the four seasons. But, um, we wanted to set out that you know, this is where we're prepared to take this comedically, and and we think we can get laughs out of the idea of, of this this woman fearing that her husband has taken her kids away to kill them. So yeah, and um, so I think it, it, no, you know, no holds barred really, and nothing was kind of ruled out. If it if it if it was emotionally real, if it made sense, if it was an interesting area to explore, then let's see if we can make this dramatic land or make this funny. Mm. And how did the process of writing it differ from something like The Thick of It? Was it quite as not a word makes it in as the previous work? No, no, it was much more conventional in that, you know, we would have writer's rooms and we would just kind of break stories as much as possible. Certainly, you know, for the certainly for the first six or seven episodes of the 10, we would try and get those stories broken and assigned to writers. I'd always write half hard drive side out of the 10 um and it was yeah it was a it was a very different experience to to the thick of it and it was much more like a kind of conventional um writer's room so you didn't have to do the is it the top minds thing that you had to do on veep i'm interested oh, by that God, that yes. sounds awful and amazing yes you would be so there would always be a writer on set for veep as there always was the thick of it and you'd be sitting um you know in the dark behind the flats when they were setting up to, or filming a scene and then suddenly you'd hear this julia call for top minds <laughs> can we get the top minds on and that meant you they needed to, uh, uh, something else in the script was there was a script problem so you would then walk on out of the dark into the set with the lights on and the crew around you and the cast there and everything and then they'd say this line isn't working um, it's just not logically that wouldn't happen. And you just, then you have to come up with, um, with some alternatives. And it was the, the walk on was, was always like a walk to the scaffold. Um, but then my, having been a gag writer and having done, you know, I did Graham Norton's show for a few years and but when he was on channel four, particularly, and it was five nights a week and they would need, you know, you would need a, a monologue. In, in the evening and I would be in there with Rob Colley who was his main writer with Dan Gaster and um, and you couldn't say you know we haven't come up with anything because there were going to be TV cameras on him and at 6 o'clock and it would then it was going to go on Channel 4 at 10 o'clock so um, you couldn't not write stuff and so it was a really useful muscle to develop um, for uh, as, as a gag writer there but that also helps you know on narrative where if someone says, have you got a, a different line here? You have, you can, you can come up with two or three things and let's see what works. Yeah. But it's still, you know, just the wander in to the, the fear. lights, the fear. Yeah. <laughs> just to the, the top minds. And also there was also just slightly sarcastic to call the Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you didn't feel that top for most of the time. Yeah. Well, I guess this was your moment to be it. So this was you, either you were going to be a top mind or not. So, Yes, no, and it was so that was the that was the terror of it that you could just go, I don't know, I don't know what you do, maybe you could fall over. Um, but we always something always happened. Amazing. 
Um, yeah, and to your point as well, there's that line from Lorne Michaels, the creator of SNL, and he says the show's doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's, I think it's eight o'clock or whatever the time it starts. It's yeah, that. okay, yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, yeah, it was a, it was useful to start as a, as a joke writer. It was useful just to, you know, to know that you could come up with, with lines. Yeah, amazing. Now, I could speak to you forever, Simon, but we like to wrap up on Red Carpet Rookies with a little questionnaire, which is my own ode to in the active studio. So it's a bit of a quick fire, if that's okay. Okay. The first question is, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Um, that was probably probably Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, um, who I work with on Peep Show and on The Old Guys um, and, and a bit on Four Lions. Um, and they were, when I because I came from a gag writing background, when I came in to write narrative, to write sitcom, I would often go... For the gag response to something, you know, the, the 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 character would 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 respond to something with a joke mm. that was an obvious joke, and not, and and, a, and not, often I hope a funny joke. But Sam and Jesse always would say, "What if you dug around next to that joke for a bit and found something that was felt more real? Found something that someone would say would genuinely say in that moment, you know, in their in their emotional state of that moment, they would say this thing. Can you find that?" And can you make that funny? Because if you can, then it's it's uh, it's much richer for for the for the show and for the audience. And it's just it's it's a better it's a better joke. And it's and it takes some looking for, but if you can find it, it's it's a good thing. And so that's what I got from them was to just look next to the joke and see if there's a better joke mm. buried under it. I like that. Number two, do you have a favorite film or one that just impacted you greatly that you remember? Um, well, in in terms of impacting me, it would be kind of filmic rather than a film. There was a, a show in, uh, I think it was eight, 1983, called Unknown Chaplin, where they, um, Charlie Chaplin had famously, they thought, burned all of his rushes because he didn't want anyone to see how he worked. And he used to work on film, like, you know, use it like a note. Um, and because he was made so much money, he, you know, that was extortionally expensive, but he could afford to. But they found a lot of reels of stuff that some people had taken away and hadn't burned. And so you suddenly see it's like, yeah. you know, it's like the uh, great artists, you know, sketches. You see this man who just overflowing with creativity. You see him just, it's a ball of creativity and it's, and it's, and it's wondrous to look at. And, and I used to go and watch it if, you know, I had it on an old VHS tape and I used to go and watch it if I was feeling kind of, you know, I couldn't think of anything. It would be an inspirational thing to just see this guy coming up with gag after gag after gag, most of which he would then throw away because they, you know, some didn't fit his character, some he thought logically that doesn't work, whereas, uh, you know, other comedians would have gone, thank, that's my big gag of the film. I've just, and he would come up with loads of those and throw most of them away and keep the absolute gold. So it was that, it was narrated by James Mason and it was a, it was a fantastic thing and I probably out, yeah, it's probably downloadable. For mm. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I like collecting those documentaries often where you can sort of see the creative process happen like the beatles one that came out recently yeah with Jackson, yes so i'll have to check that one out yeah no it's unknown chaplain and it's i mean it's you know it's 40 years old but it's kind of it's a great thing awesome number three which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours talent irrelevant uh i don't know well see it because i don't think i'm close <laughs> to for anything else really i think <laughs> i mean i've done you know the, the i've done some script editing i've done a few script editing jobs for other people and um i like that because i used to before i was a writer i was a sub editor 
on magazines and newspapers, and it and it uses that same uh, muscle. So I think I could, you know, I could be a, a strip editor. I just don't think I've got anything to do with anything else on a set. I'm, you know, not a costume designer. I just, I, no, no, I'm just, you know, when you're a writer on set, basically you're just there to get in the way of people doing <laughs> a proper job. You're just constantly going, sorry, sorry, while people are actually doing the work. So, um, yeah, maybe just a script editing, but anything else, I, I you know, I'm, I'm fine. Love it. This one's a hard one. If you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Well, about 10 years ago, I got um, I got a call from someone at the BBC saying, would I like to write a vehicle for Victoria Wood? And and I got back saying that would be lovely. And like a lot of these things, it didn't work out. Um, and then she passed away in, I think, 2016. But um, I would have loved to have written for her. I was, you know, I, an enormous, enormous fan of, of her. Of her writing, but also of her acting. Actually, I, I, she was a great actor, and um, yeah. So I would it, Victoria would. I think I would have loved to have written for her. That's lovely. Number five. What is a book, ideally sort of career or creativity focused, but doesn't have to be that everyone should read? Um, in terms of comedy, I think there's a book called The Silent Clowns by Walter Kerr. Walter Kerr, who was the uh, New York Times theatre critic in the sixties, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote a book in the mid seventies called "The Silent Clowns" that was analysing the comedy of Chaplin and Keaton and Harold Lloyd um, and Laurent Hardy. Um, but it's he manages to. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to to analyse comedy without killing it, and he manages to to absolutely not kill it, but kind of add extra life to it. And as it's as a it's it's about silent comedy but i think it's 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 applies to all humor and all comedy and it's a great analysis of comedy and humor and um i would recommend that it's um yeah it's still around i think it's still available but it's a a great essay and yeah he's someone who loves comedy and he wants to see how it works and he can explain how it works without killing it which is a, a rare thing excellent and finally if you won an oscar simon who would you thank well um well, when we got when we were nominated for in the loop, and um, and you, we got sent a, a video of Tom Hanks telling you what you should should and shouldn't do on the stage um, if you were lucky enough to win. And one of the things he said you shouldn't do is thank everybody, because he said that you know there's a there's a thank you camera backstage. So it was what you were meant to do was say what it meant to you, some you know personally how how you your, your reaction should be. What did this getting this amazing thing means to you? Mm. So um, we had that in mind. We knew we were, <laughs> win, but we still had it in mind. Um, but I think if I did, if I was allowed to thank uh, anyone, I would thank my wife Jenny, and I would thank Jack and Dan, my sons, for putting up with me. I think that would be the the thank you I would I would mean. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. This is a very special conversation, Simon, and amazing advice and really interesting. I think particularly the bit about how you were talking about your parenting and how you came to writing later. Really interesting. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is to join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or Twitter at rcrookiespod. 
I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at Mike F. Battle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.